We're in 2 Kings chapter 7. A great story. This is one of those Old Testament stories that's just worth telling, even though it's a little bit sick and disgusting too, which makes junior high boys go, yay, uh, but, but in, a, in a different kind of way. 2 Kings chapter 6, I said 7, I means we're going to start at 6. Grateful that you came up the hill, grateful that you came back, grateful that despite the fact that it's messy and yucky, uh, that you've chosen to be here on a Sunday night. You are the cream of the crop. Anybody told you that lately? Cream of the crop. You care deeply about that. Okay, all right. Anybody, you know what I say when I say the words sale bill? Did anybody use that word, a sale bill in a newspaper that says like the prices of different grocery things? So nod this way if you know what I'm talking about, a sale bill. I, I don't know that I've, I've seen one in years. I don't get the newspaper anymore. I don't know if young people, have you ever heard that sale bill? You ever heard that called that before? No, okay. So a sale bill used to come out in the newspaper. I guess it still does. I don't know because people used to plot out which, which uh, res restaurant, which grocery store they'd go to whoever had the cheapest lettuce you know and so you go and you'd look in there and it would say a head of lettuce for 49 cents and that's where we're going to go shop so a, 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 a sale bill Th this is one passage in scripture and I wish I could have had a template uh, a, a powerpoint slide template of a sale bill to be able to put some of this in here but that's how we're going to set up the story we're in second kings the latter part of chapter six there's a great story that we talked about last time we were together from this passage uh, that, that's the first part of chapter six but the chapter second part goes on to another story and we need to set this thing up for it to make sense to you so we're told the, the king of Assyria's name in verse 24, even though this is not really a personal name, this is more a positional name like a, uh, like a Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh so-and-so or whatever. Ben-Hadad, that becomes the name of so many of their kings. You don't really know which one. But he's the king of Assyria, and he decides he's going to muster his entire army and besiege Samaria, the capital of the Israelites. There is a famine in the land. The Israelite king is not named, but he's one of Ahab's kids. So he's terrible. He's a bad king. Two things are going on in the story that give you clues. Number one, there's a famine in the land. Every time there's a famine, it's a clue. The people of Israel have gone AWOL on God. Every time there's a famine, it's not just about a lack of rain, it's a lack of faithfulness from God's people. It's a cue to the people, hey guys, straighten up, straighten up, you guys are going wrong, right? And it's made worse by the fact that the Assyrians, not Assyrians, the Syrians are locking Israel down. They are just outside the city, they're camped out there ready to obliterate the city, and the city is in lockdown. There's already a famine in the land, and then you have a city lockdown, no way to escape. And then comes this strange story. It, it's, it's like, you remember when Solomon, the wise king, these, this mother comes and says, I think the, the baby's been switched. You remember this story? Where, and Solomon's going to cut the baby in half, and, and the real mother says, no, 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 let the baby live. And that great way. Well, this is sort of like that, only it's sort of not. It, there's nothing solved. It tells you how bad things were. And here it is. You ready? I'm not going to have you read it. It's disgusting. But just telling you it's disgusting. So this woman comes up to the king and says, Oh, king, help us. He says, what is the deal? She says, 
Well, this lady who is a roommate of mine, we both have children, we decided that yesterday we would boil my son and eat him, and the next day we would boil her son and eat him. And we went ahead and ate my son yesterday, but today she's hidden her son and won't bring him forth so we can eat him. That's in the Bible, y'all. Do you really want the Bible on video? Now, that's disgusting, right? And the king doesn't do anything about it. He's just so devastated. He is struck by how awful this situation's become, and he tears his clothes, and then everybody, he's walking on the wall, by the way, when he's, he's walking on the wall in full view of everybody, and he tears his clothes, and they see he's got sackcloth underneath. He's got sackcloth underwear on. Now, has anybody worn sackcloth underwear before? Don't raise your hand. Just let me imagine it, okay? This is very uncomfortable stuff to make uh, underclothes out of, but, but this is the kind of thing you wear when you are in mourning, when you are in lament. This is a situation that the king doesn't know what to do about, but it triggers in our minds something about Deuteronomy chapter 28. And that's what we're supposed to be springing to our minds when we do this as Bible students. Here's Deuteronomy chapter 28. It's called the covenant blessing and the covenant curses. It's a great chapter in the Old Testament. You need to read it sometimes. It's very fascinating right before you go to bed, right? So the first 14 verses is, if you do what I tell you to to do, if you will honor what I tell you in my covenant, I'll give you all these wonderful blessings. 14 verses of wonderful blessings plenty of food, you'll reproduce, you'll have wonderful times and good experiences, you'll defeat your enemies, all that stuff. But then he does a turn at verse 15, and notice how many verses are the curses. Did you get that? How many verses are the curses? Did you get? This is rough tonight, y'all. This is 15 to 68, that's some 53 verses. 14 of blessing, 53 describing the curses God has a right to bring on his people when they don't honor the covenant. God is serious about covenant. All right, so here's a couple we're going to look at. Verse 22 to 24. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease, with fever and inflammation, scorching heat and drought, blight and mildew which will plague you till you perish the sky over your head will be bronze the ground beneath you will be iron you know what that means it's hard as a rock the lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder it will come down from the skies until you're destroyed keep in mind this is what i'm going to do when you stop obeying my instructions when you disobey the covenant it triggers my right to punish you But that's not the only thing. Listen to this. They will lay siege to all the cities. Your enemies will attack you and lay siege to your cities throughout your land until the high fortified walls in which you trust, they fall down. They will besiege the cities throughout the land and the Lord your God has given you. Because of the suffering your, your enemy will inflict on you during the siege, you will eat the fruit of your womb. The flesh of the sons and daughters the Lord your God has given you. It's going to get so bad, and you're going to be so hungry, you're going to start eating your offspring. Now, this is the second time in this chapter it triggers this. When, they, when the king hears this, it should trigger something. Because this, this isn't just about God has every right to punish you. God says when you start seeing this, 
Read the covenant curses and blessings when you read the newspaper and when you look around you. And if you start going, I've heard this before, you know what you need to do. You need to repent of your sin and go back to the covenant. That's what he's telling them. Because God knows this, I, can't, I may not get your attention with drought, but I'll get your attention with the economy, y'all. The economy. I'll use the economy. And in this chapter, out comes the sale bill for the grocery market of Samaria. And here's what it says. Today, y'all, a donkey's head is 80 shekels of silver. How much meat do you think there's to eat in a donkey's head? Not very much. It's not exactly scrumptious stuff. It's not like caviar, you know? It's not like that. It's, it's so bad that if somebody happens to have a donkey head, they could sell it for... Or what about this? This is, this is weird. One-fourth part a cab of dove's dung. What would you do with that? A dove flies over, drops on you, you kind of wipe it off, and you sell it for five shekels of silver. Your version may say something about some kind of bean. I don't know what this is, but what the point is, stuff that's junk and terrible, the bottom of the barrel is selling for a high price. This is the law of supply and demand in Samaria at this time. This is, this is bad. Things have gotten bad in this thing. And so these people need to be looking at this and say, with all this going on and the situation being this bad, we need to turn back to God. But that's not what happens. The king does cry out. He does tear his clothes in an act of, uh, of desperation. They see the sackcloth underneath and realize that he has been in mourning. He has been in lament. But here's the thing. Just because you grieve and you sorrow doesn't mean it's for the right reason. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. When, you have, when your heart is broken and it leads you back to God, that's a good sorrow, right? This is the one God esteems, Isaiah 66 verse 2. The one who trembles at my word and he's broken in heart and contrite. It's like I'm, I'm sorrowful and it leads me back to God. But that's not what this king is doing. He's got the other kind. Worldly sorrow brings death. You just continue to die because you're sorry you got caught. You're sorry it reflects on you. You're sorry that you, you lose the, uh, the acclaim of other people. But the, not all sorrow is the same. Just because somebody feels bad doesn't mean it's a good thing. Because sometimes you feel bad for the wrong things. And in verse 27 of chapter 6, he says something that's interesting. He said, if the Lord will not help you, how can I help you? This is the Lord's problem. This is the Lord's fault, the king says. I'm mad at God. And then he goes on to talk in verse 31. He blames Elisha, and he wants to go and have Elisha decapitated. He's angry and bitter at God for this. Yes, he feels sorrow, but it causes him to be mad at God. And when he stews at God, while he's stewing there still at God, the Israelite king saying, I'm just waiting on God to do something. This great God that we're supposed to serve and all these great things he says about himself, I'm just waiting for God to show up and do something. Interesting thing, though. God's waiting for him. God's waiting for him to repent. Verse 
while you're waiting on God, sometimes God's waiting on you. It's an interesting dynamic that's going on here, and they're kind of like at a loggerhead right here. While he's stewing at God, Elisha's meeting with the elders of Israel in his own room, and he says, y'all, um, the king hates me. He's just now sent a servant to come to my door and get me and decapitate me. In fact, you guys need to lock the door. But before they get to the door to lock it, the servant comes in and says, this trouble, it's from God. It's from God. Why should I, chapter 6, verse 33, why should I wait on the Lord any longer? We're tired of waiting. We're going to do something. We're desperate to do something, so we're going to take you, Elisha, and we're going to kill you. Interesting response. Is this trouble from God? Famine, eating your children, the dire circumstance. Is it from God? The answer is yes. God has triggered his covenant curses that he has every right to bring on the people when they choose to disregard the covenant god has that right he told it to them they agreed to it they signed the dotted line we will follow you and all of a sudden they start disregarding him but god's not triggered them all yet he's waiting on something He's graciously waiting. He's not going to bring them all right now. In fact, he, he doesn't want to. Have you ever been a parent and you, you don't want to punish? You have to, but you don't want to. And you're waiting, waiting to see if there's anything, any sign that there's repentance, any sign that there's an acknowledgement I'm in the wrong and a willingness to turn. I'm just begging you, please make a different. You choose different and I'll choose different. What should he have been doing? Notice he didn't lead the people to pray. The king doesn't call for a time of prayer. He's got the sackcloth on, but he's just angry at God. He should have put the sackcloth on and prayed and led the people. He didn't lead the people to repent either. They aren't making any changes. He's just marching around the wall, kind of waiting on God to do something. Well, you've got power to move God. That's the thing. We've got power to move God by our repentance, and they're not doing it. They, he didn't consult the prophet either. They've got the prophet of God, Elisha, right there in the city. And all he is is mad at him. He's not talking to him. Waiting is something God's people have to do a lot in this life. You, if you haven't already, you will have to do some waiting on God. Waiting on the next thing. How you wait matters. What you do in the wait, there's something about it that's important. And sometimes that waiting that God's doing is a grace I do not want to stomp on you. I don't want to bring on all the covenant curses. I don't want to punish you like I have every right to do. I don't want to do it. I'm waiting to see if you'll do something different. Please give me a reason to be gracious. God is looking at, please give me a reason to extend mercy. Because I want to. And guess what? In this, and it, at, at this impasse where the king is just stubbornly putting his heels in the ground in anger against God, God's the one who blinks first. God blinks first. I don't think he should have. As a judge of God, listen, this is terrible. Don't ever do this. I'm, I'm doing something you should never do. 
I'm going to judge God here. I think he makes a mistake. He should have come down on them hard. Just bring on all the curse. Just, just rake them to dust. You have every right. God is going to do totally undeserved grace right now. He's going to back up and disregard the covenant curses, and he's going to show them one of the most amazing moments of grace in their history at a moment when they absolutely don't deserve it. And this is what Elisha says to trigger it. Guys, says to the servant who came to bring to bring him to cut his head off. He says to this master, he says, I want you to look at the sale bill for tomorrow. What? Yeah. This is tomorrow's sale bill for the marketplace. You ready? A sea of flour will be a shekel. Two seas of barley will be a shekel. I don't expect you to care about these amounts. What I'm telling you is, these prices have vastly reduced from a donkey head for 80 and a quarter inch of dove dung for a shekel or whatever it was this is much more reasonable and the 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 the, the master the, the 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 soldier the captain that the king sent to get him looks at elisha and says at the end of this chapter there's no way if god opened up the floodgates of heaven and gave us rain in abundance tomorrow it wouldn't move us fast enough to get to these prices and elisha says you're gonna see it but you ain't gonna benefit from it now how would he see it but not benefit from it just put that in your cap right because meanwhile back at the motel right meanwhile while all this is going on in the city there's these four lepers outside the city gate they're sitting in there and having this conversation you can read it in chapter 7 we're going to read some of it and i'm going to tell you some of it they're sitting outside the city gate as you know they're not supposed to go into the city and they're sitting around. It's famine time. they got an enemy behind them, and they've got the city here. But you know what? They can't go in the city. The law won't let them. And so they're sitting out here, and they're going, you know what? If we, if we break the law and go into the city, nobody's going to do anything about it. But you know what? We die and starve to death there. If we stay out here at the city gate, we're going to die here. I wonder if there's a third option. Yeah, there's a third option. Why don't we go over to the Syrian camp? And just see what's going on over there. Let's see what the Syrians got going on. So at twilight, the four guys tippy-toe to the Syrian camp. But there is nobody there. Well, there's a few stragglers, I think. There's a few donkeys and horses. And in each tent is a table, a makeshift table, you know, that you'd have in the tent. And there's warm steak and baked potatoes on the table now some of these details i'm being a little bit liberal with and it's still steaming and there's some ice cold wine grape juice <laughs> i had to do it and you guys are letting me anyway so they're in these tents and they're they're going from tent to tent and they're eating steak here Wow, and baked potatoes over here and corn on the cob over here and the silver and gold. Wow, we put it in their pockets and they're going, what's going on here? And it is weird what in the world happened over there. Here's what happened. Look at chapter 7, verse 6. 
Apparently there were a few stragglers that could tell him what happened. The Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and horses and the sound of a great army so that they said to one another, wow, the king of Israel has hired out mercenaries of the Hittites and the Egyptians to come against us and they took off. They didn't get on horses, they ran on their feet and they got out of there and they left their camp completely set up. All the food sitting there, every, all their resources sitting there, they just took off and left town. And these lepers are having like a shopping spree. And they're loving it. Oh man, they're having the time of their life and they're stuffed. But then their, conv- their conscience convicts them. And I want you to join me at verse 9. We're going to read a few verses. And then they said to one another, We're not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we're silent, we wait until the morning light. Punishment will overtake us. God's going to get back at us for this. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. Let's tell the king what's happened. So they came. They called the gatekeepers because they couldn't go in because they have leprosy. And they told them, hey, we came out to the camp of the Syrians. Behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there. Nothing but the horses tied, the donkeys tied, the tents just as they were. So the gatekeepers called out. They got a line of people to go to the king and tell him, and the king rose in the night. He heard the report from the servants. Oh, I'm going to tell you, the Syrians are playing a trick on us, right? They know that we're hungry. They've gone out into the camp, gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. Do you remember the first time this tactic was used? Does anybody remember? The city right after Jericho, do you remember AI? They got whooped. And the way they took them this time is they ran from the people of AI, and the people of AI came came back to get them, and then half of their people hid behind the city and went in. This is an amazing tactic. And he says, they're using that tactic against us. So one of the servants said, well, let's just take some men, take five of the remaining horses, see what's left there. Let's go follow them, right? So they took two horsemen, and the king sent after them, uh, them after the army of the Syrians, go and see where they are. And so they went after them. As far as the Jordan, never caught up to them. But behold, all along the way was littered with clothing and equipment that Syrians had thrown away in their rush to get out of there. And the messengers returned and told the king, this was no trick. They were absolutely running for their lives. And they were throwing off everything that hindered. And they got to pick up the spoils, right? That's an amazing thing. And so they collected this food, brought it back in the city, and guess what? A sea of flour was a shekel, and two seas of barley was a shekel. And that captain, by the way, he was designated the gatekeeper. He got to hear about these prices. But the people were so excited, they rushed the city gate to go over to the Syrian camp, and they trampled him to death. Does this sound familiar? You will see this, but you won't get the benefit from it. Amazing. God just decided, you know what? I'm just going to grace you. I'm just going to bless you. I'm going to end this whole impasse with you by showing grace. It's not something you deserve. God simply showed grace to a people who really deserved punishment. Rightly so, according to their behavior and according to everything God says in his covenant and the stipulations of it, 
they should have been punished, and yet he showed grace, outlandish grace. While they were abiding in rebellion, blaming God, contemplating assaulting God's prophet, he worked to save them. Does this sound familiar to anyone? Tell me if you've heard a story like this. Did you hear it this morning? When we gathered around the table, did you hear the story? While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. Does this sound familiar? It's amazing, isn't it? The names have all been changed. The circumstances have been updated some. But the story is the same. While we were still weak, the right time Christ died for the ungodly, the disgusting, the rebellious. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, enemies of God, Christ died for us. And if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, while we were enemies, he did everything necessary to reconcile us. How much more, having been reconciled, shall be saved? we be saved by his life, through his life? This is our story, y'all. We didn't deserve a bit of it. He didn't wait until we responded to do something. He did something so that when we learned of it, he could immediately show grace. Some religions of the world will say this, karma, when you do enough good to balance out the bad you've done, then we'll talk. Then you might have a right standing with God. You know what God does? The moment you turn, you've got a track record that's horrible. The moment you turn, you're righteous. As a judge, when I think of human people, and they haven't done anything to deserve anything, and they seem to be just doing the worst and worst thing. I keep thinking, when you decide to make some differences, maybe, maybe you'll be treated different. That makes sense to me. I look at God and say, God, isn't this irresponsible? Aren't you just... <laughs> so at the moment you hear about it, while you were still in your sin, Christ had already died... When you were still in rebellion, you didn't want to have anything to do with God, God was still showing you common grace, constantly trying to woo you to him and bless you into relationship with him. And then one day, one day you came to your senses like the prodigal son in far country. You came to your senses and said, what am I doing? How can I get back? And God had already paved the highway back. And he pounces on you before you even get home. What a God we serve. Now our job now is to help him try to reach people with that news that it's already been paid for. It's already been provided. Just turn. And so here's another verse, the last one. The Lord today is just waiting, just like he was with the king back then. He's just waiting. He's not slow in keeping his promise. He's not trying to work out all the variables and, and he's just struggling against the powers that be. No, no, no. He's not. He's just patient. Because he'd much rather bless you into, into judgment of him through his son 
then condemn you. And he waits, 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 just hoping to see a glimmer of your repentance. He should just destroy you. He should have just destroyed us all. That's what we deserved. Covenant clearly says that. But he waited, and he waited, and he he waits still. It's the only reason we're still here. We are not here so everybody gets to have a good married life and raise their children, get grandchildren, and see them go to college. That's not why we're here. The only reason we're here is God's waiting. And he wants us to help us get the news out. Y'all, there's a way out of this mess. You don't have to be judged. And maybe there's somebody who for some reason you just keep waiting and waiting. And tonight you're ready to quit the waiting. You're ready to respond. And if that's you, we as others who've responded want to encourage you. Do it. It's the best kind of life and it's certainly the best kind of future you can imagine. God just continues to wait. But he won't wait forever. You've got it. He's done everything he needs to do. And so the moment you repent, he turns and everything goes from your sin and your condemnation. It just flips over like a coin. And it's your holiness, your righteousness, and your salvation in an instant. And it can be right now. It can be this moment as we stand and sing to see it.